Hi. Welcome to the Muso podcast. For those of you who don't know, Muso is a gig booking platform that connects hirers and artists. I'll be interviewing some incredible guests and uncovering their secret tips and tricks to hopefully give you a better understanding of the inner workings of the music industry. Today, we're talking to best mates, housemates, and two of the founding members of Untitled Group. Phil and Mike have achieved so much in seven years, it's crazy. They started promoting from the ripe old age of 17 before opening their first club, Treehouse, at 18, when they were legally allowed to go to a club. They moved into the iconic Palace Theatre afterwards with their club nights anyway before a revelation at Falls Festival set them on the path to their own ambitious festival, Beyond the Valley. Seven years later, Untitled Group has grown to five partners and over 18 staff. Together, they've brought you the likes of Ability Festival, Pitch Music, an Arts Festival, Grapevine the Gathering, and plenty of warehouse raves. On top of this, they've toured with the Wu-Tang Clan, started their own record label, Daily Nightly. It's a lot to unpack, so we've had to split this up into two parts. Lads, welcome to the Muso Podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. How are things going at the moment? You've just moved to the new place, New Clifton Hill. It wasn't easy to move during uh, lockdown. Very difficult. Plus, uh, our old house, we were four and a half years there together, so we accumulated a lot of junk. Uh, yes. If anybody came and left anything <laughs> at the old Rose Street house, it is now discarded. Thank you for leaving that with us. You lived on Brunswick Street in Fitzroy, essentially, for four years. I feel tired when I, when I look back. Um, you know, we, we moved into that house such a long time ago, and I guess, um, you know, had a, having a lot of guests come through regularly and whatnot, but then... Uh, living so close to Brunswick Street, you couldn't really, you know, put the, the, the no vacancy sign on the door. When if anybody was having a drink, they'd just come and ring the doorbell yeah. and um, bash, bash down the door, essentially. So yeah, yeah, we decided to mature and move to a more residential uh, neighborhood, yes. suburbia. Well, I mean, you guys have had a pretty crazy ride. It must be good to kind of balance out everything that you guys do, which is quite incredible, which has run some of the biggest events in the country. So it's good to live a little bit off the beaten track to kind of... Uh, regain yourself and get some rest before you go back into it. I'd like to kick it off in the start. Phil, I want to ask you about DJing at 15, and that was your first gig. 15 years old. Yeah. What were your parents saying? How did you How did you pull this off? Uh, they, they basically thought it was like um, it was going to be a, a free fall into being a nobody. Um, <laughs> it was just going to result in absolutely nothing. They, no, but uh, actually, my mom, my mom and they, they grew to the idea, obviously, as in recent times. But at the start, they were just both extremely concerned i started off playing guitar and drums when i was a kid yeah and then i found electronic music shout out to mum for showing me my first ever ministry of sound compilation cd (laughs) um yeah i I eventually mike and i kind of teamed up and we were like look at all these club nights that are happening in the city if we can if only we could convince these people who are 18 years old i could dj there and you could promote there and we could go there and listen to all this Great music being played by, you know, the likes of Naysay and Gilson and Swick and Muscles and stuff. And yeah, Mike Mike made us both fake IDs. Fake IDs. Um, <laughs> which were yeah, fantastic, which, by the way. Yeah. What, what, actually, what, were the, what were the utensils, Michael? I use a toothpick and some acetone. <laughs> uh, you don't worry, kids, you can't do this anymore. The, 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 the IDs nowadays, don't, these tricks don't work. But uh, yeah, a toothpick yeah. and acetone. Yeah. It was good enough to fool our now current uh, business partner Nick Greco, who was running uh, who was running cl- very successful club nights at Tramp at the time. And um, yeah. I'll, ne- I'll never forget he came up to us one week and he went, "Mike, Toby," because Phil's name was naturally yeah. Toby at the time. <laughs> yeah. so Mike, Toby, fuck your guest list. Your guest list absolutely killed it this week. You, you, you guys keep smashing. What are you doing? And meanwhile, all our friends of the underages who we've secretly etched the IDs are all coming into the club. 50 other Tobies. 50, yeah, 50 other, 50 other Tobies. Um, but kudos to Nick Greco because 
you know, obviously Phil was a great DJ and I was good at uh, promoting. And yeah. um, he he came up to us and said, do you want to run an event together? I want to run an end of exam party for some year, year 12s. He didn't know that we were actually in year 12 at the time. Uh, so it was quite easy. So it, was a, it was a walk in the park, basically. <laughs> Just going, going, going to all your mates. Yeah, come to this club on the weekend. So, uh, you know, we ran our first event and, you know, 400 kids in year 12 all came to our first Pens Down party that we ran with Nick Greco. And he was obviously quite impressed with what we did. So he came to us with a bigger concept of, do you want to start a nightclub together? Yeah. Um, and we were obviously over the moon with that idea and started coming up with all these new great ideas and things that clubs should be doing and whatnot. Um, and then we found out the, one of our, the fourth business partner, um, Christian Soraya, who joined the team at the time. And it wasn't until I guess the night before that we opened the doors, uh, you know, Nick was very much the, the kind of maestro organizing all the young kids that we, two things happened. We said, um, well, Nick, just a few things. One, we're going to start this club together. You should know that I'm, I just turned 18 and Phil just, Phil's not to Toby. <laughs> Phil's and Phil. start clean sailor. We need to be it's transparent here. We're, we're not who, we, who you think we are. <laughs> uh, and secondly, if we go if we go into this, you know, we want to be all even, even partners. That's why we do everything, even work or whatnot. And Nick, yeah, he laughed it off and said, "I love the uh, love the transparency. Thanks for letting me know." And um, yeah, let's do this. And um, we launched a club called Treehouse. Was it yep. when did it happen? 20, 2013, Phil. Twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. I think twenty twelve. Yeah, yeah. Can you paint the picture for people listening internationally and from, and from interstate? What inflation is like, and what King Street is like in Melbourne? Okay, inflation is like it's a great venue. It's like four stories. They've got like a big rooftop, kind of beer garden area. It's like for for us as promoters, it's like a young nightclub promoters' absolute dream because you get to just for, for us being so young and so in touch with our audience because we were friends with everyone that was coming to the club. Yeah. And we were booking just local DJs that we had kind of established relationships with through our, our history between the ages of 15 to 18, meeting them while we were out promoting at other people's club nights, yeah. DJing and stuff. You know, you can really chase volume there. You can do high numbers. So for us, it was really just a game of just like feeling it Go, to its absolute yeah. max. And one of the one of the most important things, like when, you, when you're running a club of such large volume, you know, we're having to get you know, 2,000 people down every week. You know, it was very reliant on, you know, a lot of the talent and DJs that we had. So we, we booked the DJs, you curate it, but you'd have the whole three weeks on one week off. And that one week off, we'd run it like a, a theme night with just our resident DJs. Yeah, and right. I'll never forget like one of the first, the, the busiest night we had in our first month was uh, night three. We, we had come up with the idea, let's run a pool party. Yes. Put these inflata- inflatable pools on the roof and, you know, cocktails themed like it and, you know, tropical music and whatnot. And it was the busiest night we had, you know, 2,500 people came through because they were like, what's this pool party at a club? You know, it's, it's that, that bit of an extra bit of theming or nostalgia back at the time, of course. Yeah. Um, that, until, until somebody, what, slashed the pool with a knife. So, yeah, someone slashed the pools <laughs> with a knife and it was an absolute disaster. But those, those pools, anyone that was there that night, those inflatable pools are a testament to some of the creativity that people see at Untitled Stage Designs nowadays. That was, the, that, that was kind of the first event where we were like, yeah, let's do something like, a bit different to, I guess, what we're seeing um, in the current landscape and let's add a I guess a bit of a well, unique flair. Let's let's theme our events a little bit more. And yeah, well, on that yeah. note, Matt, you said you said paint the picture for anyone overseas. I mean, that club that Phil said, oh, it's anyone's dreams. But the, the funniest thing about the club was inflation was a big club 20, 30 years ago. My parents used to go to inflation. We came across this this uh, essentially, and I, I use the word like you know derelict, but it's, it's like an, it's an older kind of venue. Yeah, and we're like, how can we give a fresh spin on it? So we called it Treehouse. 
we, instead of entering through the front door, we rolled out green grass for the back laneway. Me and my dad built a big white picket fence that ran 50 meters freestanding Great. on concrete to, to build these brackets. Ivy up and down the thing. I'll never forget the night before we're painting, we're painting um, concrete toads with a UV paint and whatnot. So the whole thing was kitted out like a tree house. The drink specials are a tree house. And to be honest, after two or three weeks, it was all destroyed. No one cared anymore. <laughs> no, one, no, one, no one cared about the grass <laughs> or the picket fences anymore. But what we were able to create was um, a bit of culture, uh, which is great to have um, people that it didn't matter that it wasn't themed like a treehouse anymore. It was, yeah. oh, every week, yeah, let's go to treehouse. Oh, tonight only are playing a treehouse. Sam Moore is playing a treehouse, you know? Um, and I'll never forget how proud we were when we like started getting a bit of recognition. We were selling tickets for Future Music Festival and those big ones at the time. And um, they said, yeah, we'll give you your first after party, our first international artist. So that, that would have fire in us when we started realizing that we can work with high caliber talent and um, and really kind of you know work with the artists whose music that we yeah. play in the clubs and then we listen to. So that led on to um, after Treehouse had, you know, had its time in the sun. Just going a little bit back, what was it that you guys learnt between during the early days? Like how are you getting these big crowds? But for those who don't know, there was a lot of competition in the city like and King Street is a notoriously quite rough street. There's strip clubs everywhere and there were a lot of other big nights going on at the time. What were you guys doing differently to draw that crowd? To be honest, it, it, like it, it was almost like a bit of a, a promoting pyramid scheme which we had adopted at the time. By, yeah. by pyramids Game. I mean, you, you had the four of us at the top as the promoters that were yeah. running the night. And then your income is through door sales. So everyone that comes and pays 20 bucks on the door, the venue takes the bar. To get those big numbers, we had to use what we had available to our advantage. And that was just sheer networking, yeah. um, getting people that we were friends with who were also 18 and 19 to like start a guest list at the club. And these were literally people that we went to high school with or were friends and friends of, and we knew and- were popular kids. And then it would kind of it began with that and then once you know we were kind of knocking on the doors of most australian talent agencies at the same time because we were like this could only last so long our mates can only support our business up until a point so we kind of started running surveys with everyone you know what djs do you want to hear mike and i would sit back and listen to a lot of our favorite records and be like oh my god we should get sam Moore, we should get congo rock we should get you know all these Mm -hmm. great djs that we've kind of you know we've we've always been inspired by with a lot of our um, the way we program a night or the track selection that we kind of suggest the DJs and stuff. Yeah. And then after you know utilizing that kind of popularity segue to to build a culture and build a fan base, we took that and then finally we were getting responses from talent agents because they saw we were doing the right numbers and they were like, "You can host our artists." And then that kind of was a combination of both. From then on, it was a bit a bit of artists that were high in demand, and then us keeping up the host promoter, you know. <laughs> system and touching on that system phil, phil body called it a pyramid scheme before but uh I, <laughs> when when phil said the word network i think that the the craziest thing was when you paid entry at one of our clubs literally that that entry fee would you when you use someone's guest list whoever brought you down would get paid their little incentive the host that managed that person would get paid that incentive yeah the host that managed that host the super host would get paid that incentive and it would flow right through the top so you know the more people that were coming through the door the more money our promoters and hosts were making and those those people that we were ultimately rewarding for running and being the lifeblood of the club, we kept rewarding all the way through, you know, and, and there were people that use it as their, their business. They were, they were, you know, just as much their livelihood as it, as it was ours. And I think extended beyond the financial side of that, what that did was create a, a really good family vibe and yeah. culture. You know, you, you had the people that were there week in, week out that would take care of you. 
And, you know, these clubs hit capacity really early in the evening. And there we had our, you know, promoter line and we had our people that would get taken care of and whatnot. And yeah. and that culture and, and, and family that we really kind of built up really did kind of permeate through from, you know, yeah. then onto it, anyway and then onto the infancy of, you know, beyond the valley. No, I was going to say it, it really did turn into a, a like um, a family vibe. Um, by that point, I, I used the word pyramid skin before. It was that was a joke, by the way. But the, um, <laughs> it was it was quite literally like everyone. You'd have X amount of hosts, you know, ten to fifteen hosts that were kind of we would keep in quite regular contact with. They had their ten to fifteen promoters underneath them, and then they each had say two to three hosts underneath them. And they would each come from kind of it was like this big geographical demographic of Melbourne that we had kind of mapped out and. You'd have kids from Bayside, Northside, yeah. out of Northside, from Diamond Creek and stuff. People from like, you know, the like inner west. And it, it kind of created this, everyone came to the one place and there were so many friendships that were like, you know, are still around today. Yeah. I think we're on, I think we're on six or seven, six or seven anyway babies as well. Yeah, there's six or seven oh, anyway wow. babies which have come <laughs> yeah. as a result of the club existing. Yeah, um, That's just people that we know about. If you're listening to this and you have an any ba- anyway baby to uh, check in, please get in contact. You're, you're on the guest you know, list for the 20th anniversary. Phil was talking about with that map of Melbourne and whatnot. You know, we're we're very analytical and very data driven with our uh, approach to things now. And um, I think if you look at it in its infancy, it probably would have started then. We ha- we would have a, a heat map of Melbourne lit up, and we'd have the postcodes of all our promoters and where our people were coming from, and we would look at all right, where's our where's the bulk of our crowd coming from? Where are we getting drop off from? Why is it connecting here? Yeah, it was really, it's really interesting having those insights. The craziest thing was, um, uh, you know, now you use a lot of programs and whatnot for it. Back then, we couldn't find anything that was suitable. So we had these A4 binders <laughs> with 200 sheets of paper every week we'd print out. <laughs> yeah. And our cords so shout terrible. Out, shout it was out terrible for the environment as shout well. Out, shout out to our door girls. When someone would come through and they'd be like, I'm on um, Charles, <laughs> Charles, is that something to this? They'd have to go see, get all the C's <laughs> with the pen. And then our staff during the week would actually manually have to enter it into Excel. And yeah, we were very pedantic about how we went about it, that. It got to a point where we were making the decision on whether to invest in oh, iPads right. to, to, like, <laughs> to run a My Guest List software across. Because um, we had a few club nights going when we when anyway kind of started up. It, it, primarily for anyway. And it was kind of our first real like investment into any infrastructure whatsoever. And by that point, all of our door staff were just begging us like, can you please buy the iPads? I will not work here anymore unless it is an iPad. I'm like, okay, we should probably get iPads. What I love the most about this story, it just seems like you guys were so driven as a collective at such a young age. Like it didn't seem like anyone got carried away from it. It's like, okay, let's get Treehouse going and then let's take the next step to anyway. Was that something that was calculated or was that something that was just like, hey, things are going really well, let's do this now? Or was it stepping up to anyway at the palace like a, a six-month plan? So the change from Treehouse to anyway, there, there was a lot of things which happened. Treehouse naturally lost demand towards yep. the end. It moved to Roxanne Parlor and, you know, it would just slowly got less popular. Which is a much, um, yeah, smaller venue. Yeah. Yeah. We, the opportunity came to us for the Palace Theatre through um, a mutual party, a, a broker and, and another promoter proposed a venue to us. And the whole prospect was the venue was looking for the right team to turn the venue back into what was previously known as Metro, you know, Melbourne Super Club. Yeah. Um, the transition over to there, so initially there was four of us. There was Mike, myself, Christian, and Nick. Yep. Um, and, 
And we knew we were kind of in contact with this guy, Tom, who um, we knew was doing really big numbers at some of his own club nights, uh, mainly in the Bayside area. And that was kind of a, an area we had never really had a stronghold on, but we were like the capacity of the Palace Theatre, I think legally like 1,800 people. So you could yeah. turn over in a night around 3,000 people across, you know, I think we'd open at 10 p.m., close at 5 a.m. in the morning. So to be able to turn over 3,000 people, and bear in mind at this point, we were still 19 years old, Mike yeah. and I. We were still kind of learning yeah. the ropes behind running a club night. We were like, we need an, an, another big promoter on board. We need someone who can um, help bring numbers. We met Tom, convinced him to jump on board, and then four turned into five quite fast, actually. He um, he kind of jumped on board from the get-go as on a separate deal. But then we quickly kind of uh, learned after um, spending more time with him and stuff, he was just one of the family. And then- yeah. We um, just were like, okay, from this date onwards, let's split everything five ways equal. Cool. And it, it really kind of set the right sentiment moving forward. But I guess to answer your question, Matt, in terms of that transition, it was the opportunity came to us for the Palace Theatre and we thought about it and then we kind of had to properly go in, sit down with the, the venue owners who were, I guess, more used to a hard ticket concert type yeah. um, system with a lot of the other promoters and touring agents that they worked with. And we just changed everything. We were like, we're going to do this as a weekly Saturday night for it to be sustainable. We we need you to come to the table on a few costings. And then in return, we'll provide you volume of nights. Yeah. You know? something that can happen 52 weeks of the year and you know is, is kind of really driven by that same kind of host and promoter um, strategy that we use the treehouse but combined with much much bigger headliners yeah yeah I think I think one of the most enticing things for me was like the fact it was an old theater it was a theater not a, not a nightclub yeah now we were looking at that and going and everybody said well you can't run a club there because anything less than 1500 people then it looks it looks empty and then also once again the nostalgia element um the, the biggest club back in the 90s was metro oh sorry so 70s 80s when was it 70s yeah. and 80s yeah so the metro theater so once again where my parents went clubbing so there we get told about the metro and again pricks my parents ears and goes oh that place i used to go clubbing there so <laughs> yeah. it was just kind of that uh that amazing thing about taking a place that's been laying dormant to our generation and saying putting the spotlight on it now the fact that it was in an old theater as well uh was amazing because uh you know i knew the story about studio 54 being an iconic club in in new york and um the launch night of anyway, when we put everything into the promo of it, we had Alice in Wonderland play that first night. Actually, the first Huge. couple of weeks of programming was Alice in Wonderland, Golden Features, Parachute Youth, Dom Dollar, Digitalism. Huge. Huge. Yeah. So, so mm. we really put a lot into the launch of the club, everything that we had. And on um, the first night, you know, the, the club could hold around 2,000 people. Uh, we had 5,000 plus rock up to the door. Amazing. And once we hit capacity so early, um, I'll never forget the right police had to come down because like, because we have all these lines, you know, promoter line, guest line, this line, everything just started spilling around to one big circle around the front. And because we had to shut the doors, everyone was getting a bit, you know, agitated and whatnot. The riot police came down and actually blocked off the doors. <laughs> and we got that beautiful photo, you know, like uh, of the crowd sprawling all the way outside of the theater. And it looked just like Studio 54, the Crazy. iconic mm. shots from there. Yeah. So that, that was a really funny thing to see. And, um, once the word gets out, like if you stuff up the launch and, and, and it's the same goes with the festival, you know, if you, if something doesn't connect well in its infancy, 
and, and create that culture. You know, word of mouth spreads quicker than any online digital marketing will. So the word of mouth that the club was awesome and that everything was great on that launch night really kept us going for the first six months. I, I think in addition to that, though, it, it, we really did, because like we said earlier about Treehouse, after spending so much time trying to get our foot in the door with some of Australia's biggest talent agencies, they had started to let us in. Um, yeah. And anyway, it was kind of our opportunity to prove ourselves as bigger than just small-time club promoters here in Melbourne. And we had read from a distance, uh, I guess, a bit of a, a new dance music culture, which was brewing in Australia. A lot of it was coming out of Sydney, some yeah. out of Melbourne, but it, it was a common, it, it, I mean, the likes of, you know, your Dom Dollars, Parachute Youth, Golden Features, Alice in Wonderland, these were all artists that ended up playing at the club in its, um, you know, in its heyday, peaking dark. Yeah. Um, and this is just as they were all starting to get Triple J radio play and all starting to get nominated for the Hottest 100. And it was almost like that there wasn't a, a space in Melbourne where they would all kind of be programmed into as one kind of central hub. Yeah. It was, they would usually come here to do a hard ticket run if they felt comfortable selling 500 plus tickets. But then we kind of presented them with an opportunity with like, hey, there's, you know, two and a half to 3,000 people coming through every Saturday night. This could be a great opportunity to expose your artists while they are throwing a popularity right now yeah. to this many people in one giant room. And credit credit to like as Phil said, you're taking getting a lot of the agents and whatnot to take a chance with us on, you know, booking those artists there. It started off very much us giving them a platform to for their exposure. And it's really great to see some of those long-standing relationships stay over time. And particularly with the after-party culture that we started getting with anyway, like, yeah. you know, you'd have those artists that would go and do their big headline hard ticket shows, but then come into an after-party DJ set. You know, one of the biggest nights we had there was the Rufus Boys doing a, an epic DJ set there. I'll never forget the the walls and roof, the Merrill walls and Merrill roof were so sweaty um, from all the Yeah, that was amazing. That. Yeah. Um, you know, Golden Features, Dom, everybody after the hard ticket shows would, you know, come and do a little little DJ set after party and, uh, and that was always great. Sometimes it was even uh, a bit too expected. If uh, there was a big act in town, people would come to the club and they'd be like, oh, where's, where's you know, where, where's someone? And they'd be like, sorry, mate, it's not. It's not yeah. <laughs> but there, there were, I'm just starting to remember some of the, like even Diplo, we had confirmed oh, Diplo to play at, at an after party one. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. had Diplo play at the club. Well, I think this is probably like six, uh, five, six years ago now. It was a while yeah. ago. Yeah. Uh, it was around the same time we were starting Beyond the Valley because there was some overlap between anyway and beyond the valley at the start before we um pulled the trigger on clubs and yeah. decided to focus on festivals what advice would you have for kids starting out that want to market their own gigs you know just starting out as a band or a dj you know very entry level stuff is there anything they could be doing differently to the rest of the crowd yeah i think i think the biggest thing that i mean like there's so many different avenues you can you can do nowadays with obviously digital marketing and whatnot yeah but i think the biggest thing is putting in just the hours if you don't have a budget to just sit there and let ads go on you've got to think of ways to organically push your event your band whatnot and when we launched anyway when we launched beyond the valley and sorry stonington council or any councils that are, that are <laughs> we were going we were going around you know putting up our own we got we got in a bit of trouble for it at the time and i take some of them down but we were going around putting up our own poll posters going up putting handing out our own flyers I'll, I'll never forget that we going in and waiting outside Future Music Festival for crowds to come out and hand out, you know, cool. flyers for the club and whatnot, and and really leaning on the good network of people that we had around us to assist us, um, you know, just yeah, friends, friends, and say, hey, we come hand out these flyers with me, we do this with me. So 
I think just putting in the hours. Um, yeah, I, I would say, oh, sorry to jump in there, Mike. I just, having a brainwave picking up what you're putting down. The, I, I think, it, it, yeah, that persistence really is key. But like, I think another piece of advice that I would give is it's it's really important to find your own niche and bring something unique to the public. It's equally as important to acknowledge that innovation always means some level of risk. But if you educate yourself on every facet of your industry, yeah. And you work really hard on mastering your craft. You're not only limiting your exposure to that risk, but you can also pull off something that'll genuinely, you know, and I mean genuinely be appreciated by your punters when they're standing there in the crowd watching mm. something which has been, you know, holistically curated from your yeah. PA sound system to the lighting show to the stage design to the, the programming and the reason you put a certain artist on at 4 p.m. in the afternoon and then the other one at 8 p.m. at night. I think, um, you know, that holistic approach and thinking about it from every single angle is something that we yeah we've always prided ourselves on and I, i'd highly recommend it to anyone who's looking to get involved in any part of the music industry that is awesome advice guys i want you guys to paint the picture so you're doing incredibly well the palace is doing well you managed to consistently get crowds when did the idea of festivals start brewing when when did uh you guys start talking about that yeah um actually it was really funny because phil and i attended do we did I go to all the Falls festivals with you, Phil? I went. I went to. I went. I went to. I went to one with you. Oh, okay, so I went. But to we three. went to. We went to a lot of festivals together. We went to all the yeah. future music festivals. Yeah. Big so, day. So, oh, that was the other one. We also used the fake IDs to get into Big Day Out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we loved festivals. We loved. I went to all of them, and you know, a really, really, we have wide variety of them. You know, we were going to Big yeah. Day Out, Future Music, Stereosonic. Um, but then even a lot of like the, the band ones or, you know, my older, uh, older siblings told me about Meredith and stuff like that. So um, we got into a lot of those ones that like just, just knowledge of them at an earlier age. And um, I went to Falls Festival three years in a row and honestly had the best time there. It was just such a, it was like a rite of passage. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's growing up and talking about Falls, except Falls does naturally gravitate towards a lot of like the, um, you know, Australian bands and a lot of more of that indie band culture. Yeah. And I think it was over New Year's Eve, well, one year that I was there that um, Vampire Weekend were bringing in the New Year, which was great. But Late Night Tough Guy was playing in the in the dance tent and he had literally just as big a crowd as, you know, internationally renowned band Vampire Weekend. So yeah. there was this real appetite for people that just wanted to dance and to, to you know, to, to music. And um, I remember we came back and we said, we're just talking about it uh, after the New Year's break and we're going back in the clubs and having a bit of a think tank and going, I think there's a big appetite for a new festival here. Like, you know, so like a camping festival, that has got the, the uh, big eclectic mix, but uh, really shines the light on all the great dance music that's coming out. And when yeah. we started those chats, we said, okay, but what, what type of music we, would, we, would we do? And we, we came up with these, these five artists that we thought really represented the diversity of electronic music at the time. And they were Rufus, Catronata, Clapton, Golden Features, mm. Peking Dog, and 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 they're all dance music, but they're all different pillars of dance music. They're yeah. so they're so vastly different. And so we came up with that dream list. And um, as we came up with the concept of let's do a camping festival like this, as we started doing the inquiries and whatnot, yeah, it, it started it started kind of snowballing. We realized, all right, yeah, we can we can actually, you know. What's, in, yeah. what's involved in- to add to that uh, like those artists that mike chose is, is probably a perfect representation of you know how we do try to be eclectic with with our program but with beyond the valley specifically we kind of noticed you look at festivals like coachella and glastonbury and melt festival in germany governor's ball and stuff there, there was kind of two two scenes brewing in uh, specifically melbourne at that stage you had and we kind of saw there was they were, they were right next to each other, but they didn't know it. 
And it was mm. the house and techno music community. And it was the Triple J community. Yeah. And the Triple J community community was welcoming all this music from, I remember when Rufus yep. released Atlas, it was almost like, it was, it's still to date one of my favorite records of all time. And it was, that was released, Disclosure really settled, I think it, around about the same year um, or close to that. And it, it was kind of like, it was so obvious to us. It's like, surely the kids that are listening to Clapton, Patrick Topping, and Maceo Plex know that, you know, Disclosure and Rufus exist and their music is yeah. in terms of the stems that they use and the four by four beat within, you know, it, kind of keeping it within that 120 to 127 BPM range. It's, it's, you know, they're familiar worlds of electronic music. Wouldn't they pair so well on a festival lineup? And we were seeing that was happening so much overseas, especially with Melt Festival. Melt Festival in Germany, we drew, we actually took the, the time to go there and, and check it out. And it was just so amazing going to see. We watched Tame Impala and Disclosure play on the main stage. Yeah. And then we walked to a beach stage to watch Mano Latuff, Maceo Plex, and oh, sorry, Maceo Plex didn't rock up that year. But then Solomon yeah. <laughs> played a, yes, like a six-hour sunrise set on uh, like this kind of this really well-designed bespoke beach stage which was kind of built as like a, a big kind of almost like a tiki hut sitting there on a riverbank and it was just it, it really inspired us and we just felt there was nothing in Australia like it, 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 it not just with the programming the, the, yeah. the ability to be able to go and see you know one of our favorite rock bands of all time to go and watch and Solomon played techno for six hours he loves a long and set was, doesn't um, he? inspiring he does. he does, and and Phil Phil touched on it there. But outside of yeah, you know, like, like you touched on it there perfectly. You know, outside of just the music curation, exactly what we did in nightclubs, we wanted to bring that extra element of flair, that degree of kind of you know just captivating your audience to a festival. I mean, how many of your best festival moments have been not you know, not even involved watching a band? Has it been you know getting lost with a best friend or yeah. you know coming along a crazy art installation? So we had big dreams that we were going to do stage designs and decor and everything like no other. And I'm very, very proud of what we were able to achieve in our first year on a shoestring budget. Um, yeah. We designed these beautiful, oh, you know, the designers that we got at the state, at the time um, designed these beautiful um, colored uh, feathers that we were able to span, you know, 30 meters each side of the stage. Yeah, with LED cool. screens built into them. So, so, you know, stage design, I think it was a real holistic thing of if we're going to deliver a product um, that we feel like the market's ready for, it's got to be different to anything else on there on the market. And that's got to be, you know, curated differently musically. It's got to have um, art installations. We want to have all, all different. And even the glamping side of things, you know, we were we were one of the first festivals in Australia to, to really push that whole glamping element. And the first year that we had uh, glamping at Beyond the Valley, we had, uh, a, a, you know, cocktail bar in there, uh, room service with food that could be brought <laughs> yeah. to your tent. Uh, you know, all the beds made everything. It was it really was great, except for the fact that Phillip Island was so damn windy. Well, yeah, and, uh, we, we definitely blew the budget. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 the and and some of the tents down, they were ripping apart in the wind. It was uh, it was wild. I mean, that's another thing. What um, you've got all the the idea to do the festival. How how hard was it to choose the location? Uh, well, the first one we we had there was a, a guy that we worked with back then who brought that location to the table. But it, it was exciting for us, kind of stepping. It, it's such a beautiful site. You can literally see Pyramid Rock, and it's all yep. um, on that corner. It's just kind of an open flat field, which is beneficial in a number of ways. Once you get gradients involved, it's kind of 
it starts to get complicated with installing temporary structures and yeah. you know installations. But you also being on the base of a cliff, it's we were watching people chase marquees down lanes yeah. at one point because the wind was just yeah. literally taking their tent away. So we kind of after that year we were just like that. The festival's so great in so many ways. It's yeah. time to choose a new location, and we we spent a lot of time on Google Earth from basically speaking to councils direct to, to find titles, um, you know, well, people who are, who are open to communicating about this kind of stuff to broker a deal for, you know, farmland. If it's in the instance of something like Pitch Music and Arts Festival, that is just yeah. basically farmland. And then there's other venues like Lana Park, which, you know, just pristine parklands, this nice, beautiful lake, which sits in the middle of, of the festival site. And um, to answer your question, how we choose it, we kind of sit there with a, big list of considerations yeah um, stuff mm. like infrastructure on site water access to power gradients the weather consideration is probably the biggest one we get a pretty detailed and um you know comprehensive report from fire attack before yeah. signing off on anything it, it yeah it, i guess above all it needs to be beautiful right well, it needs to be a really nice site. Well, let's let's go back to the first run, 2014. Incredibly successful, 7,000 tickets sold. What were some of the learnings from that first year? Oh, everything. <laughs> it's, it's a long list. <laughs> yeah, like, like, I think, I think um, you know, I mean, I think a constant theme for everything that we do is that constant passion and enthusiasm. And when we you said, what's the idea that came about from Beyond the Valley? When we realized that we can really actually make this product and make it work, um, we just jumped in head first and yeah. uh, we didn't know what are the contractors we were working with. We just approached them and said, hi, we're going to be running this festival for 7,000 people and would, would you like to quote for us? And oh, I think a lot of people at the time took advantage of um, our age, mm. uh, you know, seeing a whole bunch of 19-year-old kids come through and asking for quotes they never had before. And yeah. the amount of, you know, people that overquoted and ripped us off and mm. we really, really took us for a ride, honestly. But um, mm. this is, I guess, all part of the process and everyone's going to have their journey, um, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that, um, you know, a lot of my friends and stuff that study event management and we, we talk to about, you know, well, what's the next step or how do I get into the industry? And honestly, like firsthand experience is the best way to, to, to go and learn because you really can't envision some of the things that you're going to get thrown at. And particularly with the weather, you know, one year at Beyond the Valley, the first year we're, we're running a festival on cliffside. So yeah. that's, of course, be- beautiful. It's a great idea until there's 100 kilometer gusts throwing tents over the edge of the cliffs and yeah. you, know, you might have to evacuate the stage. And then you know, next year, it's suddenly torrential rains and there's a, mm. a mudslide. And, and, and you really, uh, you know, I think, I think uh, what we've learned over time is really having a really solid event management plan and, and the right team of people around you to be yeah. proactive in those situations is going to be imperative because um, yeah. you know, I, I can honestly say thanks to our team and the professionals that we've refined and over the years and now work with us and the amazing thing we have we you know can we've run we run great quality and safe events and um in the earlier years you know there's some some people that we worked with that we just genuinely won't work with again because you know it's a learning they took us for a ride yeah yeah (laughs) well it's incredible um what were some of the learnings between the first and the second year because it's quite incredible uh seven thousand tickets sold in the first year and then the second year in 2015 you sold seven thousand tickets on the first day yeah, well, it was. It, there's. It was actually a pretty special moment for us, to be honest. Because um, I think, like Mike said earlier, a lot of contractors that were involved with the first year did take advantage of our age. 
and yeah. our inexperience with music festivals. We had come purely from an artistic and you know lineup background. We had no experience with technical production, site management, event management, risk, safety, compliance. Back then, we were just so green. Yeah. And we also didn't have a lot of money coming into this. Mm. We, we were using all the money that we saved from anyway, put every last time that we hit and had into that first event. And it, um, you know, w- when the wash up finished, we were sitting there with a shortfall and it, we kind of hit a, a, a pretty big, a pretty serious discussion at that point of, are yeah. we going to go again? Do we, do we, mm. do we roll the dice? Mm. You know, if we do do it and it doesn't go well, we don't even know what's going to happen next, yeah. but we're probably all going to go, go to Mexico or find <laughs> it was Mexico. You know, we, I think it was in the lead up to that day where we sold 7,000 tickets. Like you said, it, it, quite literally in the dying minutes, we secured some of the biggest headliners that played at the festival that year that they were, um, you know, Jamie XX right after he released yeah. um, his uh, record in color, which is, was just an absolute, you know, global hit. And yeah, you know, him paired with flight facilities. Skepta was another one that we had secured just as he was starting to break through. You know, it was the lineup just kind of really, uh, we were sitting there two weeks out with a few missing holes and then just, you know, a bit of, a bit of risk and extra hustle, especially from our partner, Nick Greco, who was working tirelessly at the time to kind of get Jamie XX yeah. signed off on before we announced it, which was literally the next day. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we went story. out. We we went out, and we're like, okay, once this once this gets announced, that's it. Like we're 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 stuck. We 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 have to make back the money that we lost from yeah. the previous year. We can't afford to to run this business if it's you know if 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 we don't see an upside this year, that's it. We'll you know we'll basically be broke. Um, and then the first day happened, and I'm pretty sure there were tears in the room from some of us. It was just like oh. we we turned a new we turned a new chapter, and it was like. Oh my God, maybe we can do this forever. We just sold 7,000 tickets in our first day and then we ended up selling out that year and, you know, we clawed back our losses. Yeah. Unfortunately, we learned, like Mike said earlier, um, you know, you really need to jump in the deep end sometimes with volume. So those extra patrons does come extra responsibility. And yeah. um, I guess for, for us promoters that, you know, really wanted to make sure the quality of the event was in its, you know, its highest standard. The second year we were fronted with some pretty serious weather conditions. It was um, an El Nino year, which uh, means really, really high heat. Um, and we didn't have enough shade, um, had some problems with the ice suppliers leading into the event and stuff. And, you know, while the, the production and the music and stuff was great, there was just a lot of that stuff, which comes attached to a camping festival that you yeah. cannot neglect. And that was, you know, four or five years ago. Now we, um, we learn a lot from that. And we, we really just kind of came down hard on ourselves after the event that year, we called up every single person that had lodged a formal complaint to us right. about their experience yeah, right. at the festival. We heard them out. We took note. Each of us, literally, we sat in a quarter. We took 100 names and phone numbers each. We said, can we please grab your phone number? We sat there. We listened to every single phone call. We just wrote down, like, dot point. Um, took too long to get into the festival. Dot point. Ice ran out on this day. Dot point. Not enough shade. Dot point. The PA was terrible on the 30th of December. December um, security were security guards were rude. You know uh, this, like all this stuff, and we were so, um, you know, it took a year to turn all that stuff around. But yeah. I remember it was Beyond the Valley year three, and and at the same time, pitch year one that we had put so much effort into the 
these kind of, you know, this important detail into running an event that we started to see, hang on, if, if, if we can be, um, you know, apply the right consideration process, time investment into, you know, money and effort to make sure that we tick all these boxes, we can be professionals at this and we can make sure that these events are world-class. And I think it was, yeah, third year at Beyond the Valley, first year at Pitch, where we started to see that that, that was a goal that we could achieve. Um, and now we've kind of, we built a Bible out of that, which we, um, we go to whenever we, we go to, whether it's a one day, you know, untitled day party or it's, you know, Wildlands in Brisbane or, yeah. you know, four days of Beyond the Valley. We stick by those rules. We make sure that the ingress, egress is perfect. The, um, you know, the stage designs are, the niche, they're bespoke, they're different, but they're, they're big and beautiful. We're making, um, you know, we're, we're investing more into our technical production and the programming as well. You know, obviously like all promoters in this country, we have to book on demand to play such a large role to this, yeah. does this artist sell a lot of tickets here, but can we be, um, culturally diverse with our bookings? Um, can we be, um, you know, diverse with the gender ratio of our lineups? Can we, yeah. you know, and even, you know, through, uh, more recently, our starting Ability Fest a couple of years ago, um, I guess diversity is something that we really wanted to put a big focus on and in that capacity and in accessibility and, yeah. and um, being inclusive. But then in another regard, we also looked at our programming in being diverse with how eclectic we were. And we introduced a lot of, a lot of Hail Marys in there in the last few years that Mike and I absolutely love oh, yeah. to be front and center for like yeah. um uh, you know a lot of people yeah mastercraft a few years ago which was Huge. which was a big moment for us um you know just a few throwback acts that show people that come to beyond the valley and stuff that mm. there's we're, we're putting we're putting stuff in these lineups to excite them and it, we encourage them to take a break from you know obviously see the top 10 artists that they want to see but go and see um you know too many djs mastercraft and um you know even, even things like we put them Put them on the lineup to pay tribute to yeah. You know, well, you touched touch on it too. You said like Lady Hawk, uh, Little Dragon was a personal favorite of mine that we got to host. Yeah, um, mm. probably my probably my all time favorite was um you know the New Year's Eve countdowns a big thing for us. We've actually had it as an Australian artist bringing the New Year every year because there's just so many so much great domestic talent here. That is awesome. And and I'll never forget the one year that the presets came up. Uh, as, uh, uh, it was the group. it was the best decision we ever made. <laughs> yeah, and, we, we did it. We did a bit of sampling. We did a bit of like going out to our in the field and our promoters and whatnot. And a few of like our younger audience, eight fresh 18, 19 year olds that had come to one or two beyond the valleys had gone. I don't know who the presets are. No, who are the presets and that? And we said, Nah, you know what? We're doing it anyway. We're putting you on the countdown, and Sick. everyone's going to be together. And it was by far the the best. Well, actually, actually, I can't say that because uh, I love all the countdowns, and it would be unfair. But uh, I think it held a really special space for me because uh, the Priestess was the first artist I ever got to see live. Right, I mean, as a fresh. I was I was there. Yeah, we both went. Yeah, we went together, mate. <laughs> yeah, wait, was it? Was that your first concert? Was that your? That was my first concert, man. Yeah, that was. Oh, we went together. <laughs> you should you should have jumped in the buggy with me then. I jumped in the buggy with my brother after years. I drove up to the Artist Liaison Center. I walked in there, uh, popped over a bottle of champagne and said, guys, thank you so much. Amazing. Um, uh, you know, I'm the promoter because it was such a surreal moment having you here. And the guys are so lovely, bless them. But something was a little off. Like it was just a bit weird going on. And I didn't notice what happened until I left the room. And as I left their dressing room, I looked down and I'm in a pink dressing room, brown, 
pink cowboy hat, pink slippers. <laughs> it's pink themed for New Year's. And I totally forgot that I didn't explain why I was dressed as a pink cowboy at all. So, so that's, uh, that, that, was, that was good fun with them. But yeah, like really, really just surreal moments. I'm um, having, you know, people like Rufus or presets, uh, you know, back all the great countdowns we had at Beyond the Valley. It's a really special moment. This is going so well. We're going to split this over two parts and there's plenty more to go. Next time, we'll continue our chat with Phil and Mike about Ability Fest, what it's like to tour with the Wu-Tang Clan and the challenges of putting a new festival together. Join us next week on the Muso Podcast.